The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. What, what God is offering, His righteousness which is being revealed through Christ, which is available through faith. So if we can go to the next slide. Um, I'm going to give a survey of these three, three groups. And uh, it's important to see that each group does not stand alone, s- separate or distinct, but he really starts with the broadest possible category, and he slowly narrows down his focus. And a lot of people believe that his final target, what he's, what he, what he's zeroing in on, is specifically the Jew. Uh, but he con- crafts and constructs his argument in a way that um, begins at the point of least... Uh, conflict, And he starts with how lost pagans are. And especially with his audience, he would say, you know, those pagans, they're all going to hell. Everybody would say, amen, those pagans are going to hell. Let's hear it for those pagans, right? And he starts there. But as you unfold his argument, it becomes clear that, that when he's talking about pagans, he's including in that category everybody, right? So the next two groups of people are not separate, but they're actually inside this big group. Okay, so the first group includes every person in the world. And it's really where every person starts out in their broken relationship with God. They start out as people who are just pagan. They're just godless. Right? Now the second group uh, we would call the moralist, the good person. The person who realizes that they are godless. And their remedy or their cure is to be a good person. And so they strive to do good things they live by conscience or by some moral code. And by that means, they think that somehow they will better their status from godless to being a good person. And so you ask many people, you know, are you going to go to heaven? They say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. And how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I'm a good person, right? That would be the moralist, the person who's trying to do the right thing. And, of course, that's his second group. And he explains in the next message in chapter 2 why... They're just as lost as the pagan, right, in the end. But then you come to the third group, which would be part of the second group, which is part of the, the first group, right? So the Jew is a special kind of moralist. The, the Jew is a special kind of good person who's not just generically and randomly trying to do good. They have not just any moral code. They have the moral code given by God himself. They have the Old Testament. They have the law. So they have not just a plan for being good. They have the plan for being good based on God's revelation. right? So they can claim, oh, we're just not trying to be good people. We're trying to be the good people of God, God's chosen people. And we have his specific special instructions to do that. right? And of course, Paul also shows how they have failed and how they also are under God's judgment. So today we're going to look at the first of those groups, uh, the pagan, those without the law, those claiming no law, not claiming to be good, right? who aren't trying to be good, uh, which in our day and age is a growing group of people. As postmodernism takes deeper root, uh, you hear more and more people say, who, who has a right to tell me what's right or wrong? Right? That's kind of the, the modern cry of, 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 the, of the postmodern generation. Right? 
I don't have to follow laws. I don't have to be a good person. Who are you to tell me what good is, right? It's all relative. It's all up in the air. It's all up for grabs. And more and more, our culture is really moving towards paganism, towards lawlessness, where there is no code, there is no right, there is no wrong. I do whatever I want, right? And nobody can tell me otherwise. Um, So it's a very relevant, maybe not for our personal context. I don't know, maybe some of you came out of a pagan background. Probably many of us did not. So maybe we don't identify so much with this group, but it's a group that's very relevant for our time and our day and our, and our age. Um, and as you look through uh, this, this passage, which we'll read in a minute, um, the objection is uh, that, that comes up often is, what right does God have to judge these pagan people? And, you know, a lot of times the argument is, you know, some guy off in some jungle of Africa who doesn't know God who's never heard about Jesus, who doesn't have a Bible, who's never seen any moral law, how can God judge people like that? Okay, how can he hold them accountable when they don't know him? Right? You ever heard that argument, anybody? Uh, or, and it's not just in Africa. I mean, I can go to a lot of places in Thailand where you could use the same argument. There are people who don't know God. They've never been exposed to the Bible. They don't have any idea who Jesus is. They don't know... Uh, the moral laws. In many ways, uh, Thai culture is very amoral. It's without a code, right? Well, uh, let's read and we'll see what Paul's answer to that is. That in fact, all people are without excuse. All people are without excuse. Let's read. Uh, we, won't, uh, we won't read all the way through. We'll take it in sections. But let's start with the first section in verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because He has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. They are without excuse. Right? Um, why are they without excuse? How can God hold these pagans, these people who don't have the Bible, who've never been introduced to Jesus, who don't know the history of God in the world, how can God hold them uh, without excuse, hold them accountable as people who are worthy and under his wrath? Well, let's look at that. First of all, uh, first thing we really need to talk about here is God's wrath. Because right off the bat, this is just a problem for a lot of people, you know, God's wrath, God's severe anger. Uh, and in fact, in our day and age, this has become a very sore spot for a lot of people. It's been a huge criticism against Christianity, and it's been a criticism that many Christians are caving into. Right? And they're saying, well, in fact, some commentators do interesting things with this passage, to uh, bail God out, to rescue God from being an angry God. And the argument goes something like this. You know, if God is so loving, if you follow and worship and serve a loving God, why is he ticked off all the time? Why is he so angry? Right? And uh, the idea is that wrath or anger and judgment and love are absolutely incompatible. That God cannot be both and. He has to be one or the other. And so... Uh, in an effort to rescue God, modern Christianity has axed the sight of God's character. 
And it's like, God's not angry. He's love. You know, he's like Santa Claus. And he's got the whole checklist thing, but he really doesn't check it twice, right? He doesn't even check it once. Because he's just this happy God who never would be angry at sin. But Paul clearly says here that's not the case. He said, God's wrath is revealed. And it's interesting, it's a parallel to verse 17 where, uh, where Paul writes that God's right, righteousness is revealed. Right? He just got done saying God's righteousness was revealed in the gospel. Same exact word he turns around and he says God's wrath is revealed against sin. Right? So it's a very real thing. And if we try to twist or distort that verse, then we must also meddle with how God's righteousness is being revealed. And the word revealed here uh, doesn't mean so much that God is illuminating our minds with some fact or information or truth. It really has the idea that he is manifesting something in action, in history. Right? So when, when God revealed his righteousness, it meant Jesus actually came. He didn't just send a message, but he sent a person, and he manifests himself uh, as Jesus came to the earth. And in the same way, his wrath is real, and it's being manifest in this day and age. Um, well, how, how does this work? How is it God can be an angry God of wrath? Well, uh, a couple of important points to note. First of all, a literal translation would, would go this. God's anger is revealed, his wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of people. It's unfortunate the New Living translates it this way. Uh, they translate against all sinful and wicked people. Technically, God's anger is not directed at people directly. Okay? He does not hate people. No matter how sinful or wicked they are, God loves all people. God loves everything he has created. Right? But his wrath is directed against their ungodliness and sinfulness. He is angry at what they have done at the choices and actions they have made, at their conduct and behavior. Uh, and we, we do have a human equivalent of this. It is very possible to love someone dearly and be very angry at things they've done. You know, it, Maybe you've had this experience in your home. Maybe you have boys. I, have, I had girls, so I didn't really have this experience. But maybe uh, now that I have grandsons, I'm starting to get a taste of it, right? The boys are in your house playing a fun game of soccer, right? And uh, you're not there to supervise or referee the game, and it gets a little out of control, and a soccer ball goes through a window or goes through some great precious family heirloom, and you come home, and there's things that you value that have been damaged and destroyed and broken. And what do you feel? Are you happy? <laughs> are you Santa Claus? No, you're an angry parent who's upset, who's angry at your child's behavior. That doesn't mean you don't love your kid anymore. Of course not. You love your child. Your love for them is unchanged and untainted. But you are nonetheless filled with wrath. And they will experience your wrath in one form or another, right? God is no different. God is no less. Uh, and... I would argue and contend that actually God's love is the source of his wrath. If God is not angry at sin, how can he really be a God of love? And you see, what we don't understand is that it's precisely because he loves all that he has made 
that when what he has made has been ruined, damaged, and destroyed, it makes him angry, right? It makes him furious. Again, not because he doesn't love people, but because he hates seeing the good things that he has made wrecked and ruined. It is, it is actually his right loving response when creation is ruined. And again, we as parents um, can identify with this. If you have a middle school or high school or even college-age child who is making terrible choices, maybe they're experimenting with drugs or with alcohol or uh, sex, and uh, it scares you as a parent, right? Because as Christians, as believers, as people who, who probably have experienced some of this ourselves, we know that the consequences of sin can be extremely damaging, right? Those kind of experiments can come at great cost and great risk. Great inner damage, if not outer damage, to our children. And so what, what would be the right response if we love our kids, right? We say, ah, no big deal, you know, so they get AIDS or some sexually transmitted disease. Yeah, it serves them right. It doesn't bother me. Okay. Would that be the reaction or response of a loving parent? No, right? We are angry, not because we don't love our kids, but because we do love them. Because we love them deeply. And we want to protect them from the harm and damage they bring on their life when they do stupid things, right? Uh, We fear that because they're drunk or because they're on drugs and they drive too fast and get in an accident and kill themselves, right? We fear for what can happen as consequences of those sins. Well, God is no different. It's because He loves us that it triggers the response of wrath when we ruin and destroy our lives. And through our sin, ruin and destroy His creation, other, other lives, right? It is His love that's behind His wrath. Uh, and God could not be any less, right? For God to be indifferent or callous towards sin would make Him inherently unloving. Right? And I, I would say that the more passionate and strong your love is, the more intense and extreme your wrath is. And so God is infinite in love, Therefore, his wrath is not mild or small. It's huge. Um, Another distinction we need to make when we think about God's anger, and one of the things that causes us problems, is that oftentimes we think of God's wrath in terms of my wrath, right? And my wrath is pretty selfish and always out of control, right? When I get ticked off, uh, you know, it's not very restrained, you know? Uh, God's wrath is never like that. His wrath or His anger is never like ours. First of all, it is never motivated by selfishness. It is always motivated by love. God is never self-serving in His wrath. Secondly, as we look through Scripture, God's wrath is always restrained and controlled. I lose my temper. God never loses His temper. He is patient. He is restraining His wrath. And thankfully... He is not pouring out all that we deserve instantly. He is patient and waiting. Uh, The third thing about God's wrath is it serves serves a gracious purpose. The harm and difficulty that comes into our life is intended to draw us to himself, to turn us away from our foolishness and to draw us to him. So it is really an act of his grace that he is judging, that he is letting us experience the consequences of sin. 
So that's a little bit about God's wrath. Um, and he says it is being poured out, it is being revealed against the ungodliness and righteousness of, of men, of people. So what is the crime? What is it the crime that we are guilty of? He says that uh, his anger is being revealed from heaven against wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now remember again, we're talking here about the first group, the pagan group, right? People who have no law. Uh, and God in his grace and justice will never hold people to a standard for which they have not received revelation, right? So when God judges pagans, when he judges all people, his first level or tier of judgment will not be based on how well they've kept the Ten Commandments, right? Because uh, he's talking about people here who don't care about the Ten Commandments, who don't know the Ten Commandments, who don't subscribe to the Ten Commandments or any other moral code, right? But they're still guilty, and the basis of their guilt is that God has given them truth, and they have pushed it away. Okay? They've suppressed it. They have ignored and rejected the truth or the revelation that God has given them. And uh, specifically, what, what has God revealed to them? Well, specifically it says that God uh, has revealed to them himself. Okay? And here's an interesting thought. And Paul, this is one of the few places in the scripture that really develops this, but it's very interesting. Paul argues here that every single person who's ever been born, deep down inside, knows God, has some knowledge that God exists. The fact is, there really is no such thing as an atheist. an An atheist is a person who, like it says here, is suppressing the truth and running from the knowledge that they've been given. But the reality is, every person ever born knows that there's a God. Uh, because, and, the, and the reason is not because of their own brilliance or because they are smart, but it's because God's revealed it. He said God has made himself known to every human being. He has given them a knowledge of himself. So uh, I don't know if, how it was for you when you were a kid, but you know, every child who looks up into a starry sky or into uh, a rainbow who sees the majesty of the mountains or the ocean, uh, who wonders at the universe, right? They know that there's a God who created it. And I don't know about you, but I've I've had a lot of doing youth work and children's work. I've had some very interesting conversations with children, like, you know, where where did God come from? But I've never had a discussion with a child where I said, you know, God created everything, and they said, well, that's just impossible, right? Kids instinctively know that's true. It rings with them that there's truth in that. That, of course, there's a creator God, right? It's only when we get old and smart that we become stupid enough to think the world could have come into existence without a creator. No kid is that stupid, right? It takes adults to be that stupid. Kids know, yeah, sure. Everything had to be made by something. It had to originate from somewhere. There has to be a creator, right? And God, has, God has, has revealed himself. It says, and, and how has he done that? Uh, it says he's made it plain and obvious to them. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. They've seen his creation. And through everything God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. And the see there doesn't mean, you know, you could say, well, I was blind, so I didn't see it. The word see there really means to perceive something with the mind, Okay. So if you're blind, you're still without excuse, okay? Because you've perceived the universe, right? 
um, through everything that has made, they've perceived his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. So they are without excuse. Okay? Therefore, they are without excuse. God has made plain and clear and evident. And all the words that are used there are words that emphasize that the knowledge God's made available is not obscure. Okay? It's clear. It is crystal clear. God is, now, it doesn't mean that God has given a complete revelation of himself. It doesn't mean that they know all about him. But it means that every human being knows something about God, his invisible qualities, his divine power and majesty. Every human being knows that. Right? But they have rejected it. So, so the next question comes up, you know, are they, really, are they really without excuse? He says there, because God's revealed this to them, they are without excuse. But is that true? Can they really claim no exemptions? Right? Can they really say, can God really say, you are absolutely without excuse. You are absolutely held accountable for what you have done. Um, and and uh, the truth is that every person has rejected, has pushed away, has suppressed this truth. Right? Have, have twisted the knowledge of God. And so, in the next few verses, Paul confirms this by giving some evidence. Right? So he wants to, to develop it a little further. He wants to confirm it by proof or evidence. So, so human race is on trial. Here's the charge. You're without excuse. You are condemned before God under his wrath because God revealed himself plainly and you have rejected it. Okay, so what's the proof? Well, he gives basically three arguments. And the arguments come in, in the form of what we have exchanged. He says, you have traded God for something else. Right? And he gives three examples of that. The first is in verse 21. He says, yes, they knew God. Okay, absolutely, they knew God. No questions asked. But they would not worship him as God or give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So the first thing, they, they, they traded, they exchanged the majestic glory of God for uh, empty idols. Empty idols, right? He says, you, you traded, uh, and talk about a bad trade, okay? Why would we do this? I don't know, but this is a bad trade. The majestic, glorious reality of the eternal, infinite, immortal God, and we traded that for images that represent temporary things like people and birds and reptiles of all things. Okay, and why would we do that? Well, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that in history there are examples of people who made this kind of bad trade. One of the most classic in the Old Testament is Esau. Remember Esau's bad trade? He was firstborn son, had full rights to everything his father owned. Uh, as firstborn all the property, lands, assets, and resources of his father, most of it would have passed on to him, not only for himself, but for his, pros, his, his children. What do you call that? Prosperity, posterity. I don't know. His children, his offspring, right? For generations to come, right? And he traded it all for what? A bowl of soup. 
Okay, a bold, talk about a bad trade. Well, that's kind of what humanity has done, right? They have traded the glory of God for something absolutely insignificant and worthless. Um, the glory of God for empty images. Uh, and, and they've done it by two very significant ways. He said that they have honored these images. But, well, first time about what they haven't done for God. They have not, they have not worshipped God or given Him thanks. And here, here's an important thing to note. Okay, We'll talk about it in a minute why this is important. But the first and chief sin of mankind is not any law that we broke. Okay, And when you're talking to somebody who is is not has not put themselves under the law, right? And if you're trying to evangelize somebody who's not in the law, and you try to go with the, you know, you, you're a bad person because you have sinned, right? Well, somebody who doesn't believe in sin, doesn't believe in the law, what are they going to answer you? <laughs> I haven't sinned. Okay, I'm perfectly fine, right? Where do we start with people like this? Well, this is where we start. You have not worshipped God. Now, that's a hard one for them to deny, right? You have not worshipped the creator of the universe and given him thanks. Okay, guilty. Okay, I hate God. I don't believe in God. I have not worshipped God. Exactly. Right? You're guilty. You are under God's wrath because you have not worshipped the crea- and acknowledged and given thanks to the creator God of the universe. Right? Um, and I think that's why Paul starts here. Right? That's why he starts here. He starts, first sin of mankind. The first place where we went wrong was not because we broke any laws or commandments, but is because we misdirected our adoration and our worship. Right? We started worshiping, we started giving honor, we started acknowledging, we started putting first as first place in our life things, stuff. Right? That's idolatry. Um, we uh, we make ideas. Things, stuff, ourself, more important than God, and we honor and worship it. That's the first sin. Um, by the way, some people would, would say here that God is kind of being selfish, right? Well, who is this God that just demands worship? I mean, isn't God just being selfish here? Uh, and demanding and expecting our worship and thanksgiving, in, isn't that kind of presumptuous on his part? I mean, who is this God? Who did he think he is anyway, right? <laughs> Well, uh, given at face value, that may be true. But it misunderstands what God's purpose is uh, and why he's called us to this. What does God in his love want for us? Well, he wants us to be happy, joy-filled people who are glad in him. And what's sad about all this is that when we exchange the real for the counterfeit, we are putting our hope and trust, our worship, in things that cannot deliver. Again, this is a key area when we are working with pagans, with people who are are lawless. Say, look, you know, you you do not worship the true living God. What do you worship? What do you live for? Money, sex, fame, glory, yourself, right? The first question is, is it working, right? Is it delivering for you? Is it making you a fulfilled, happy person? Of course, they'll all say yes. But deep down inside... There's a huge emptiness that is unfulfilled, and they know it, right? They know that their hearts are empty, and they know that their futile pursuits are equally as empty and unfulfilling, 
Right? You want proof, you know, just go to Hollywood. People who have it all, who have, have taken their idols to the furthest extremes and uh, they are in drug treatment programs and alcohol treatment programs. They're taking their own lives because they are miserable and depressed, right? The idols cannot deliver because they're fake. It's false. And in fact, that's what he says in the second, the second one. He says in verse 25, so you've exchanged the glory of God for idols. Secondly, he says in verse 25, they traded the truth about God for a lie. So again, they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself who is worthy of eternal praise. They traded the truth of God for a lie. Uh, in other words, they traded the real thing the real thing for a fake. The word that's used there for lie is the word we get, it's the word pseudo. We get pseudonym or pseudo whatever. It means fake, counterfeit, right? Uh, you know, if you, if you want an experience of counterfeit, uh, go to Tachi Lake and buy an iPhone, okay? Okay, it looks like an iPhone. It has a little apple on it just like an iPhone. They'll tell you it's an iPhone, you bring it back across the border, it won't work like an iPhone, right? Because it's not. It's an MP3 player with a little phone, right? Um, it's fake, right? It cannot deliver the goods. And Paul says, you know, they have traded what's real, what is substantial, for a cheap counterfeit that cannot deliver. It cannot come through. Um, it cannot make you happy. It cannot fulfill you. Uh, and it is, in the end, the end, serving a bad master. It says you worship these things, you serve these things, you serve what is false, right? Uh, again, people don't believe this. Say, look, at the end of your life, and, and they've done some amazing interviews of people at the end of their life. And they've asked people, was it worth it? You know, you gave your life to this job, you gave your life to this career, you gave your life to golf, you gave your life to whatever, right? In the end, was it worth it? Did it deliver for you on the day of death? You know, I've yet to hear somebody say, man, I wish I, had, wish I had worked more. I wish I had made more money because on my deathbed, all that wealth would mean something. Right? It means nothing. It means nothing. They can't enjoy what they have in life, much less in death. Right? The third great exchange in verse 26 he says, not only that, but that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Literally, it says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. We so gave them up. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Right? And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Right? Again, this is, not a, this is not based on a moral argument or on law, okay? Uh, Paul is not saying here, you're bad people because everybody knows that it's against the law to be involved in homosexual relationships. It's not his argument, okay? These are people who are without law, without written moral codes, who are under, uh, not under moral constraints. But he makes this observation. He says, look, you have done this, even though you haven't broken any moral codes, what you've done is you've exchanged... What's natural, God's natural good gifts, for what is unnatural. Okay, what is, what is uh, normal, what is acceptable according to the laws and the rule of nature, for what is clearly unnatural. 
Now, of course, if you're, now, if you're talking to somebody who's in the gay lifestyle, you know, they're big, they're, and they love this argument. Their favorite argument is what? I was born this way. It's genetic, right? Why do they need it to be genetic? Why is that so important? Why does anybody care that it's genetic? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they're trying to defy what Scripture says. They're trying to say, see, it's natural. It is natural. And, and, and in that very argument, they're admitting that there are natural laws that govern the universe and that they are within what's natural. But the reality is that even for the most deviant sexual pervert, there's always something more perverted that to them is disgusting, right? That they would agree is immoral and unnatural, right? There's no, you know, in the United States and other countries, they're passing laws to, for same-sex marriages. Okay? Nobody's passing laws that makes it legal for teachers to have sex with students, right? Because that's sick. It's wrong. No culture says that's natural, right? But yet, in, in darkness and in sin, people have exchanged what is clearly, obviously, the natural use and function of God's gift. And they have distorted and perverted and twisted it into something unnatural. Right? And people know that. Pagans without law know that. Every culture has a sense of what is natural and normal and right and what is twisted and perverted. And even though they know that, they practice and dive into things that are unnatural and contrary to God's law and order, um, his, his natural law and order. Um, so so that's, the, that's the evidence against them, three things. Right? Real quickly, along with that, God gives basically three judgments. Okay? And it's so important to note that when God says he's handing them over to wrath, uh, certainly there's a sense in which God's future wrath will come. Okay? There is a day of final judgment. But the word that's used here in the verb tense uh, is, is that we are uh, now experiencing God's wrath. It is being revealed even now. So the truth is that pagans, sinners, humanity, are currently experiencing something of God's wrath towards sin. Well, what does that look like? Well, three things. First off, in verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. And so they became futile, empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. First consequence of sin is that what truth you were given, what, what knowledge of God you were given, quickly evaporates into blindness and darkness. Okay, Human beings, and this is why the gospel is so important, human beings are too blind, too lost in the darkness to find their way out. It is a consequence, it is a judgment of their choice, of their sin, of their rejecting God's truth. God says, you reject this truth, I give you no more. And not only that, but what truth you have will fade into darkness. Right? You are blind. You cannot find your way out. Okay? Uh, People who are without Christ, who are without the light of Christ, cannot find their way to God. Okay. Sorry, sad news. All paths do not lead to God. All paths lead to darkness. Jesus alone leads to God. Because without the re- revelation and the enlightening work of Jesus, no human being in their own mind and their own heart can find their way. They are lost. Right? They are lost, without hope, apart from God's 
intervention and revelation in their life. No one finds Christ on their own. Now, some people find Christ without the help of other people, but no one finds Christ, finds their path to God by being a better Buddhist or a better Muslim or a better Hindu or a good person. It's impossible. Because God has handed over, when they rejected the first revelation, when they rejected the truth God gave, their foolish, empty minds became dark. Dark, right? That's why it's so important that we proclaim the gospel. That we go to the ends of the world. We go to every village we can find. And we proclaim the gospel. Brian just told me some great stories of, in India. Going to some crazy way out of the way places where God is working and where he is proclaiming Christ and people for the first time are seeing the light because someone is taking the message to them. Right? That's why it's so important. Second judgment, shame. It says in verse 24 and 26, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, because he turned them over to their lust, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The dishonoring of their bodies. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Right? So here's the deal. You know, they engage in all this perversion and unnatural stuff. And what's the consequence of that? Do they feel good about it? No. The consequence is they feel shame. Right? They feel shame. Right? Now they will jump through all kinds of hoops to convince themselves they're not ashamed. Uh, it's interesting Pagan cultures that are essentially amoral, without moral code, moral law, without the revelation of Christian Judeo ethic, uh, are not dominated by guilt. They are dominated by what? Shame. So in Asia, we have shame-based cultures, right? Because the degradation of taking what was natural and following the course of the unnatural produces in them shame. They are dishonored in their bodies, right? They're ashamed of themselves. And they spend their whole life trying to save face, trying to recover uh, their shamefulness. Right? Uh, last one, social order. He, and we won't read the whole list. It's great, inspiring reading of all the wickedness in the world. But he, he says in verse 28, he says this, um, Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, okay, so again, the charge, they ignored it, he abandoned them. He handed them over to their foolish thinking and let them do the things that should never be done. And then he gives this great list. Uh, became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, gossip, backstabbers, insolent, proud, boastful, disobeying parents. Um, gives this great list, okay? And what's interesting about this list is it's a lot of vices. Uh, interestingly, it's vices that a lot of Christians are also guilty of. Um, they're all social vices, right? They're all, they're all sins of, of broken relationship. He pretty much, well, he completely leaves out of the list immoral sins. He doesn't cover that at all. And he only makes one mention of a sin towards God. He says they're God-haters. Other than that, he doesn't talk about sins towards God. He focuses on our sins towards each other, Right? Uh, and you know the truth about God's wrath and His judgment is this: God does not judge us. Okay, God is never going to strike you with a lightning bolt. God is never going to beat you up. Right? What He is going to do, though, is He is going to rest- He's going to lift His restraining goodness, and He's going to let allow you to punish each other. <laughs> okay, this is a great rule for parenting, by the way. 
<laughs> you know, why punish your kids when they can do so much better job beating each other up? Right? Um, that's what God does. He says, look, my judgment, my wrath being poured out is that you're going to have to live with each other. As sinful, broken, hateful, selfish human beings who will do far more damage to each other than I ever would want to. Right? And praise God that in His common grace, He restrains some of that. Scripture says that He is restraining by His Spirit what we could do to each other. It could be much worse. God is restraining. But the truth is, the world is full of broken relationships. Right? It is His current wrath. It is His current judgment. And I think you know, hell is going to be just an extension of that. God's not going to have to do anything to send judgment. Right? People will torment each other far more than God needs. Right? We will do it to ourselves by our own choice and will. Um, so sh- a shattered social order. <clears throat> um, and he, f- he, f- he concludes and summarizes in verse 32 by saying this, They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. So here's the, here's the, the final condemning uh, proof. He says, look, not only do they know God, not only has God revealed truth to them and they've rejected, rejected it, but, but inherently they know that the consequences of their sin is death. Right? They know where it leads. And yet they choose to go down that path anyway. And not only that, but they encourage others to go with them. Um, Well, that's not very good news. (laughs) Kind of depressing, actually. So let me me close with just three uh, thoughts uh, to give us some perspective. First of all, I do think it's very important that we remember where we came from. Uh, most of us, many of us may have come from Christian backgrounds, Christian homes. We may come from a more moral culture. But I really believe that the first step away from God is this step, that every person passes through a pagan phase, right? That their first step away from God is to refuse to worship and give him thanks, to acknowledge him as God, right? Then something else kicks in and our conscience kicks in and we try to become a good person because we have rejected him and we know we're guilty of death. But really, all of us have, have been in this place, right? All of us came to a point in our life, and I don't know when it is, you know, as a child growing up, we have this knowledge, but there's some point where we no longer give God thanks. We no longer worship Him. We stop, right? Uh, and it's why now our worship is so important, right? our acknowledging, our giving Him thanks. Because it's the difference between pagan and a child of God, right? Um, it's important to remember where we came from. And it's important to also uh, remember the restoring work of Christ, right? Uh, We were in darkness. We were blind. It was impossible for us to find God on our own. But praise God, what the gospel means is that Jesus is the light, right? Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, comes to give light, to give sight to the blind. We know God. We can have faith in Him. We can accept His righteousness because Jesus lights the way. Secondly, through the cross, it says Jesus bore our shame. Right? He took our shame. He took the dishonor we brought on ourselves, put it on Himself. So that now instead of having an identity that's shame, based in shame, we now have an identity as a child of God. 
Okay? When you are the son of the king, there's no shame in that. Right? There's great honor. And that's what the gospel does. It takes us from shame to great honor as his children. And thirdly, the gospel is a gospel of reconciliation and love. It takes us from the broken, damaged relationships that we have done to ourselves because of sin. And through the gospel and through the work of Christ, we now have the hope of reconciled relationships, restored relationships. And now we are to, as believers, live with a different social order where we unselfishly love each other instead of beat each other up and lie to each other and deceive each other and trick each other. We unselfishly give ourselves to each other. And we enjoy the blessings and fruit and benefit of a new social order, the kingdom of God, right? where we experience his joy and his blessing. Uh, I love this maybe antidote uh, or word. Uh, and it's interesting how it counters a lot of what Paul says. I'm going to close by reading Psalm 100. And just notice how it counters these themes of wrath, of refusing to worship, of refusing to give thanks, of a life without joy. He says, Shout with joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. We are His people the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you that you are a God of unfailing love that continues forever. And Lord, you are a God who will judge. You are a God who who does respond rightly to the sin in the world and the wickedness with wrath. But that wrath itself is born out of and witness to your very love and compassion for the things you have created. Indeed, the Lord is good. And all you do is good and right and perfect. And Lord, we acknowledge you. We gather this morning as a group of people together who join together to acknowledge you as our God, that you created the universe, you made us, and you have made us your people. And so we give you praise and thanksgiving and worship. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.